that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola, and we are coming to you after a week break for the Memorial Day weekend. So everybody is well fed and refreshed and hopefully relaxed, and we hope you out there have had a wonderful and peaceful weekend, too. It's great to be back, and we're going to get to spend today on a really interesting topic. And, of course, it's a topic that comes to us through the tireless research, the tireless Italian-American research, of my partner in crime, the Italian-American Wikipedia himself, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle, who joins me today with our associate producer, Ms. Stephanie Longo, who has just returned from a wonderful trip overseas, so we're happy to have her back and safe, and... Uh, Guys, it's good to be back together after the break. Mm-hmm. I, I that's so nice you called it research, but I I qualify it as more of an obsession. That's fair. Yes, that's fair enough. I don't think it's healthy. <laughs> I don't well. think anybody <laughs> with a psychologist, psychiatrist would call it healthy. But this is what you love. Waking up four o'clock in the yeah, absolutely. Hell, if it's going to be a drug, it might as well be a drug that benefits mankind. That's very true. Yeah, that's very true. Before we get into the conversation, I just want to apologize to the audience a little bit if I come across as echoey because uh, this Memorial Day weekend, my wife and daughter and I and our, our bulldog, we all moved up to the suburbs. So I am in a temporary space. We have not soundproofed anything here yet, and we've not soundproofed the new space we're working on for the show. So if you get a little echo, please forgive me this week and maybe even next week as we try to sort this out. But uh, home ownership comes with a lot of hiccups and but you spent your first weekend in suburbia going to Home Depot. I did. To buy yeah. stuff, not for your house, but to pin medals on your white tie. Yes, that's true. Pat and I had a white tie event this weekend, and uh, I had to go to Home Depot at 6 in the morning on Saturday. So I woke up my first weekend in suburbia and said to Nicole, hey, this is great. I feel like such a suburbanite i'm going to home depot and she's like well it's not like you're going to fix the house you're going to find mechanics that pin metals on yourself sick we're sick (laughs) yeah it is sick and my brother's there about magnets don't use a pin use a magnet but you know what i'm thinking you going to suburbia it's like it's like lucy and ricky moving to connecticut i feel like those episodes all the time now how many kids out there do you think have never seen that that have no idea what we're talking about never seen lucy and ricky go to connecticut probably a lot Probably a lot. I think in the canon of I Love Lucy, the latter, the latter seasons of them going to the suburbs and stuff, I don't think that gets the same play. But how many 19, 20 year olds have never seen that period? I'm curious. I'm not. This yeah, isn't like a, a charged political statement. I just wonder. Listen, I am the I Love Lucy fan on this. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I opened up. I, I opened up a can you, of worms. Yes, now. Did. Here yes, we go. My- we got a whole ep- <laughs> we're going to have a whole episode on this one. Were they filmed in Scranton, Stephanie? <laughs> no, she was never in Scranton, unfortunately. That no. we know of. However, did you have like a dream like of Lucy filming in Scranton? That would have been, <laughs> that the, would be that would have been the apex of your existence. That would That's what heaven will be for you. It'll be an I love Lucy said somewhere in Scranton <laughs> with Italian food. Yeah, exactly. I mean, come on. You can't separate the Italian American stuff. But no, I will tell you when I was in Jamestown. There were a lot of 19, 20 year olds like there were a lot of young people going around Jamestown looking at the Lucy sites. I saw more people that were younger than me than people in my age bracket or my mother's age bracket. I wonder. I, but I will say, though, it does feel a lot like that, Pat. I've been thinking about that over and over. I had the greatest Italian-American suburban moment last week because, you know, Nicole and I always have this sort of um, tension between 
my Italianness and her Italianness, and you know, she maintains she's much more modern than I am, which is probably true. But she drops these great pearls that prove that you just can't take the Italian out of somebody. So, you know, we we moved to the house, we renovated it, and the time came to furnish it, and I was relegated to my office, the only room that I can leave my massive collection of Italian stuff in, and everything else she's been picking out furniture, and she's pretty frugal, so she, you know, looking at sales and very reasonable, but the one piece of furniture that she really wanted to splurge on was this couch from Italy, and apparently it was this big designer in the 70s designed this very popular modular couch, and vintage ones from when he was actually alive are like 50 to 60 grand, depending on the, I mean, they're like ridiculous, they're like museum pieces. I think there's actually one of his couches in the MoMA, but Last year, this Italian company got the right to re-release this couch. So we were we got on you know the wait list, and we got the couch and the leather she wanted, and it was not a cheap prospect. You got the modern knockoff. We got the yeah, but the the approved knockoff, if you will. So I said to her when she bought this, I'm like, look, you know, this is beautiful, but you know, we have a old bulldog, we have a baby, we have a lot of guests, people come over for Sunday. You know, might not be the most practical family couch, but she loved it, so I. You know, we got it. We got the whole so thing. So what's the punchline? You want my guy for plastic? Punchline is she wants your guy. So she comes to me and she's like, look, we got to move the couch. I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, well, the baby's spitting up. I said, yeah, of course, she's an eight-month-old baby. So now we have to relocate the fancy couch to a place that nobody can use it. We've got to do uh, gates. Above. That's why they had, pla- you know, everybody makes jokes. They covered their couches in plastic for a reason. Yeah. My mother's furniture looks like 1968 was yesterday. She bought everything in the calendar year of 1968 and there's not a scratch on it because you couldn't scratch it if you wanted to. That's what I keep saying to her. I'm like, I, I either you're going to no, no one's ever sat on, on it. That's probably well, that's oh. what we're going to have. We're yeah. going to have the Italian room that nobody's allowed to go into that looks beautiful. It's going to be all done. I'm sure there'll be white carpets on the floor like my mother had, and nobody will ever go into it. So that's the punchline is as much as she thinks of herself as, a, as an integrated American, you just can't take it out of her. She's... I'll tell you the God's honest truth. My grandmother, when we got the house in 79, my grandmother created plastic runners so nobody could walk on the rugs. Oh, my mother had those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. My mother had those until they moved out of the city not long ago. Yeah. We had the plastic and everywhere. And then my mother had, after uh, construction, she discovered that the builders, the, the artisans and craftsmen who ever worked in the house, used to put these, like, cloth shower caps on their shoes when they came in. Oh, that was, yeah. oh, yeah. My mother makes them do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was so, like, she's like, mm-hmm. I got it now. Yeah. Yeah, she had a box sitting for years. I love it. Her house. That's a smart thing. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a, but the, You talk about the furniture lasting, what, 50, 60 years, you know, and being preserved. And we as a people, I think, have this uh, devotion and dedication to the material culture in that kind of way, right? Like if you buy something, Instead of buying junky stuff, you're going to buy something nice. You're going to preserve it. You're going to, you know, sweep your sidewalk and your house. And everything is about preservation and longevity. And it's interesting that I think now, as our society is facing a, a, a demographic change and shift that we've really never dealt with anywhere in the West, this idea of an aging population, people living far longer, less kids, longevity of self is uh, becoming increasingly important. That's very, that's a very deep opening. Mm-hmm. I, I, I got where you're going with this now. Well, it, it's a deep opening because it's it's a deep topic, and we have one of the world's foremost scholars who is of Italian-American descent with us today. And uh, Pat really did, like I say, through his research and all the articles he reads and anything that has to do with Italian-America, he highlights and sends to Stephanie we put in our 
IAP Bible of show topics and conversation topics we want to address. And so one day we will hit them all. We will. Yeah, we'll get to mm-hmm. you, you just got to keep listening for the next thousand years. Absolutely. Well, how many articles do you have saved in your office? Oh, mother of God. It's it's a scandal. 30 mm-hmm. years plus, right? I have boxes and boxes from the 90s. And and I, I used to save articles and I never knew why. But Providence knew what was that one day there'd be a podcast. That's that's true. So Providence knew those articles I cut out in the 90s that one day they'd be on a podcast. The Pat O'Boyle National Italian American Archive. That's what it is. Because I, I just I'm 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 a hoarder of articles. Mm-hmm. You are. And I, and I have them broken into categories. But this is a new that my brother was the tip off for today's guest. Oh, he sent it to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. My brother's the is like the Wizard of Oz. He's the guy behind the curtain. That's always true. Yes, Anthony gets very little recognition for it. No, he does. He does. He gets plenty. He likes to sit there. He does. Let's not let's not forget who's the favorite. He gets he gets his dividend. He does. He gets to eat whatever he wants. Even on your birthday, Anthony picks the menu. Yeah, that's true. On my birthday, my mother on my birthday, my mother says, Well, your brother wants this. Thanks. (laughs) That's that's when you really know you're number two in the birth order, even though you're number one. That's very true. Your brother wants this for your birthday. Okay. That's good by me, I guess. Uh, well. I'm just gonna, I don't know, go along. Talking about going along, I just have to have a quick thank you to Cavaliere Mariana Gatto, who, besides a beautiful handkerchief from Sicily with the busted mother on it, sent me a case of lemons from her own backyard. Wow. This is what Italian people do when you have Italian neighbors, even if it's in a telematic neighborhood, they give you food from their trees. And I am here researching a lemon meringue pie. You gonna make a lemon meringue pie recipe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I have so many of them. She was so abundantly generous. I wanted to lemon chill with the skins, but then at the juice. Do you ever make delizia limone with at the fifties? That's modern. That's a yeah. modern. That's that is Rose' favorite thing in the world. I know that is Rose' favorite but dessert. That came on the stage in the eighties, really. That in uh, ricotta pera, both are nineteen eighties inventions. Well, wait, Pat, I'll tell you one quick thing, too, about yes. Mariana. She's doing the bomboniere for our wedding. She sent me a message and she's like, I want to donate the bomboniere for the wedding. And I was like, that is the sweetest thing I have ever heard in my life. That someone that only wow. knows me just for you guys. She was like, I'm going to do the bomboniere. That's just my gift to you. I can't thank her enough. That was so sweet. That's really wonderful. So what is she making? I don't know. Wow. <laughs> That's great. I was just so thankful that someone would want to do that, that I just couldn't thank her enough. So I'm just entrusting the whole thing to her. She has excellent taste, so I'm sure it's going to be fabulous. And we're Taylor's excited. Choice, huh? Make, yeah. That's great. Yeah, she does have excellent taste. Well, <laughs> Cavaliere, everybody on the show knows how much we enjoy you. She's been, obviously, a guest on before. and uh, Fantastic. Yeah. The head of the mm-hmm. Italian-American Museum of Los Angeles. They're very blessed. And she's a great listener, too. She's a, a, a loyal listener. So she's oh, she's phenomenal. Hear. She yeah. treats she's me. I, I get much better treatment than John. I get cheese. Yeah, you do. I, I she's going to hear cheese. me say, I'm keeping No, nah, she's going to feel better. Pat's no, got I, 25 I different packages. Stephanie's get, getting yeah, boom, boom, boom. I'm just keeping. Once in my life, listen. My brother gets favored for certain things. I need to be number one in somebody's book. <laughs> well, You're number one yeah. in our book, Pat. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yes. So all my goat cheese. But you know why? People love to feed me because I love to eat. That's true. I woo and I ah and, you know. You do. Yeah, you. Dolores always says that we're a joy to cook for. Because you are a joy to cook for. Th- though I've never had the duck. If you're a long-time listener, the duck has still not appeared. Starting to think that that doesn't exist. Yeah. Pat is a joy to cook for because every time I have cooked for him, he has cleaned his plate. That's true. Oh, yeah. I, I make love to food. 
<laughs> I make passionate love to food. I don't just make love to food. No, you I enjoy make every, deep, every morsel. Pa- yeah, yeah. Listen, <laughs> some little chicken had to die or a little tomato had to get picked. And why make their loss of life in vain? You know, it's funny you talk about food because I'm Nicole and I have taken on your intermittent fasting program. So I'm in the middle of my first week. Have of you really? Fasting. Yeah, we have been. Yeah. And I'm so I'm not eating until, I don't know, a couple hours from now. But I think about some of the things that you and I have talked about, about longevity. It brings me back to the topic for today and our amazing guest and, you know, how, how you eat the, the intermittent fasting. You've talked to me about studies on Mediterranean diet on cholesterol and cow's milk or certain types of cow's milk versus goat's milk. And, you know, we're learning so much as we age as a population. And today's guest, Dr. Benedict Albensi, he is, I'm going to read all these acronyms at the end of his name. He's a PhD, BCMAS, CRQM. I don't know what some of those mean, but maybe uh, some of you out there do. And he's also the professor and chair of the Department of Pharmaceutical Sciences at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So we are very happy to welcome Dr. Albensi onto the show to talk about his research in not just aging and longevity, but, but primarily also in, uh, I guess it'd be neuroscience and cognitive health, right? Uh, uh, dementia and uh, Alzheimer's and some of these things that are really starting to face a, a bigger and bigger population of our community and our, and our country. So, Professor, it's uh, wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Yeah, buongiorno. Come Buongiorno. We're happy to be together. How about you? Yeah, good. Yeah, you know, it was interesting, John, you were just talking about the um, the five plus two diet, so intermittent fasting. So I actually worked for the guy that set the stage for all that research. So when I was a postdoc fellow at uh, University of Kentucky, Sanders Brown Center in aging, I worked for Mark Matson. Mark Matson is the most highly cited neuroscientist in the world for 20 years. So he was my boss back in 1997, 98. And uh, he was the one that did a lot of this groundbreaking work on calorie restriction and the intermediate fasting. And nobody believed them then. But it really set the stage for a lot of the books that are coming out now. I'm doing this because it stimulates a variety of neuroprotective uh, pathways in the brain. So you're giving your seal of approval to my wife and I taking on this lifestyle choice. Absolutely. I do it myself. I mean, look at every religion across the world has fasting as a component, or at least many do. And I I think that there's a wisdom there that's been translated from generation to generation that we don't even know why, but I think science is starting to find out why, right? I mean, I'm only a weekend. Pat's been doing it for years, right, Pat? Yeah. Uh, Yes. I, I, the only thing is I was a little bit off the wagon during COVID because um, it was, it was actually harder lockdown to be with people, to be with family. Before that, I was very, very severe with it in the sense of every Wednesday and Friday, 24-hour fast. But you feel like a rock star. I, 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 the first two or three months were very hard. So if you're going to go down that road, it's a very hard beginning. But then after, by month three or four, it's no problem. Because you feel, you feel great at the end of the, of the, of the two fasts. Yeah. But that's what the Greeks did. I mean, the Greeks religiously fasted and the south of Italy did on Wednesdays and Fridays. So maybe that's a little bit of why in an age without medicine or real technology, we were able to last as long as we did. Doctor, that's fantastic that you've endorsed this. I feel so much better about it now because some people think I'm crazy doing it. I mean, I feel good. 
my numbers were fantastic after it. But yeah, I, I can't encourage, you know, Eric Lucera, who's a listener and, and a dear friend. It's something else that we share in common. Um, we're from the same town in Italy, and we also uh, we also both intermittent fasts, and I think he would attest as well to the the benefits. It's always interesting to me, coming from an anthropological perspective, how a lot of the things that our ancestors or ancestors, you know, in different societies did in terms of restriction, in terms of religion, in terms of social covenant, that now we're seeing science to prove kind of why right we we oftentimes write these things off as hocus pocus but you know yeah. look at the the prescription against pork in in a lot of western society and in, in islam and judaism and you know we we find archaeological evidence to say that there was a prescription against it in ancient egypt as well mostly because people understood that pork has a lot of issues and it. it has to be prepared very carefully and it uh yeah. carries a lot of disease. Yep, that's right yep. yeah so this is this is the kind of stuff that you know, if we can remember where we came from and match that to modern science, we, we're going to continue to learn a lot about who we are. And, you know, like we say, this is a, an unprecedented time in Western history because of the aging of all societies, really, across the board, particularly in the first world. So, Professor, tell us a little bit about this idea of studying aging as a scientific discipline because it, it's relatively new, right? It is, and that's interesting that you you mentioned aging separate from age related disease because uh, because they are different. And something like Alzheimer's disease is age related, and aging is the greatest risk factor. But we get confused about this because you know aging marks marches forward, and and it increases our risk for a variety variety of chronic diseases, but. There's certain things we just can't say anymore, like, oh, everybody gets a senile as they get older. That's not really true. And, and Alzheimer's disease is one of those things where we know there's real pathology. And for years, people have been studying amyloid plaques and taus, these, these tangles in the brain that are associated with Alzheimer's disease, but that's really distinct from aging. And in fact, people like David Sinclair at Harvard have pointed out there's probably nine hallmarks of aging. And some people are very provocative in this view, so that if we were to try to address with medicine or with diet or other preventative measures, if we were to address these nine hallmarks, and I study one or two of these, that we probably can extend the human lifespan to at least 120. Wow. And we believe it's 120 because of our genetics. Now, getting past 120 gets even more controversial, but we've had people live that long, right? Yeah. In fact, the region in Italy, I'm trying to remember the name of it, where there's many uh, people that live to be over 100. Sardinia. Chilento also has the blue zones. That's yeah. where I am. Yeah, right. And so, you know, and in the U.S. and Canada, we see people living over 100 as well. So why is this? And, you know, David Sinclair and others, uh, there's a fellow near, I can't remember his last name, and Albert Einstein and uh, uh, Rando at Stanford that are all coalescing in the rest of these ideas that these nine hallmarks are these things that we can address to extend our lifespan. So what are some of the hallmarks? Well, like mitochondrial function. And so what are the mitochondria? Well, in high school biology, we learned that they were the power plants of the cell. They produced the energy They're the energy currency. And I, I got really into this about nine years ago. We spent a huge part of my lab program on looking at mitochondrial dysfunction and Alzheimer's now. And 
we've learned a lot of things over the years. We've looked at sex differences. We find that females get affected earlier in the, in the disease process. We see that, you know, we can correct mitochondrial dysfunction sometimes with over-the-counter products like creatine. Right now, I have a clinical trial going on in Winnipeg with flaxseed. You know, Winnipeg, Manitoba is a big flaxseed exporter. So they grow that crop. And, and the hospital I used to be at had been studying flaxseed for over 10 years for heart health and published a lot of uh, important papers showing it improves heart function. And um, when I got introduced to some of that up there, I realized that hardly anyone studied it for brain health. So, you know, I'm not a nutritionist. Um, I have a PhD in neuroscience, but I've gotten involved in some of these nutrition studies over the years. And I think there's a lot we can do with prevention, better diets, better nutrition, and it all is focused on improving mitochondrial function, one of these hallmarks of aging. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So we had a brief discussion uh, before the episode, and we talked a little bit about the fact that you are an Italian-American from New Jersey, grew up in Chicago, and we learned from the article that introduced us that your drive to answer questions about Alzheimer's is, is a personal one. Do you want to share kind of how you got into this? Well, I mean, I got into it. I was actually an art major when I first started college and I was in Chicago and I was going to this film school and I was studying photography and, and I had it. And I always did well in science and English in school, but I don't know, I just was starting to go down a different path. And I had to go to a lecture at Northwestern University and it was on the split hemispheres of the brain, the left and right hemisphere. It was a lecture by Robert Ornstein who was famous many years ago. I'm not sure if he's still alive, but he talked about how the left and the right hemispheres are really quite different animals in our head. And the left controls mathematical function and language and the right hemisphere is involved in, in creative thinking and music. And it really, it really kind of changed my whole life because I said, this is what I want to do. I want to get involved in neuroscience. And that was before neuroscience was actually a real discipline. So that's kind of how I got into this path in, um, you know, the 70s. But more recently, I got involved in Alzheimer's disease research and memory impairment about 17 years ago. And it was just a coincidence that my mom developed dementia and died from dementia in 2017. And also I had an aunt and uncle, they're not Italian, but I had an aunt and uncle on my mom's side of the family that um, died from Alzheimer's disease too. So it's affected me personally now. And I've seen how little the scientific community is doing to really make progress. It's the sixth leading cause of death, but we don't have a cure and the treatments are very poor. So it's a very frustrating situation. And so I have kind of a, a new passion for the work I do because of my mom and seeing how she had to experience the, uh, the rest home setting, which is really horrible. So yeah, it's, it's piqued my, my motivation in many ways. You know, it's funny you bring up the rest home setting because Pat and I were talking about this as we were preparing for this episode. And Pat was talking about the idea that traditionally in Italian and Italian-American culture, oftentimes 
those members of the family who aged were kept at home and the family had to sort of figure out how to deal with any of the ups and downs that came with that. And, you know, I come from a family where my great-grandmother lived to be, I think, 94, 95, and suffered a stroke. And in the last 10 years of her life was very much limited in what she could do. As a matter of fact, she had been in America, I guess, probably 60, 65 years, um, raised her family here. And after her stroke, she could only speak Sicilian. She could not speak English oh, anymore. So she just reverted linguistically. And, you know, my grandparents took care of her until the last year of her life when they finally yeah. had to put her in a facility. And it was a massive decision yeah. on their part. And, you know, I think as you intimate, there's serious gaps in the kind of care. And so, yeah. Well, I should just mention that my parents got divorced when I was nine and I didn't live with them anymore. So I moved in with my grandparents and this is my non-Italian mother. And so the way her family handled things is quite different than my father's family, the Italian side. So that's just, you know, something to mention. But I actually, so given I saw my mom in this rest home setting and I was in Canada and she was in the U.S. and I couldn't bring her to Canada, which was another complication but I, I've written a couple of papers the last couple of years on the rest home setting, even though I'm not an expert in rest homes, but from what I witnessed and what I thought could be improved. And in fact, we interviewed this lady that started the Dementia Village in Holland. I don't know if you knew about this. It's, it's been on CNN. It was featured on CNN three or four years ago, the so-called Dementia Village. And they created like a fake Main Street. And everything is like secure, but it's as if you, you have a real main street with park benches and you can go into a variety of different little stores. There's a diner, there's a barber shop, there's a grocery store, but it's actually all part of like a small mall and you can't get out. There's only one way in and out and that's secured with uh, nurses and security guards. But the residents all feel like they're living in this village and they're so much happier. And they go to, when they go home, they go home to their little apartment complex and they're never truly alone because their cameras, I mean, that the camera part's a little bit weird, and, but also necessary for some people. And, and so they can get help anytime they need it. But it's a new concept in how to uh, deal with our elderly and, and those that, you know, have disease like Alzheimer's disease. Isn't there a center like that in Florida now? You know, that's a good question. I don't know. I've only been here eight months. I didn't know that. I know there's one in San Francisco. There's something similar. It has more of a retro feel. They, they have, uh, yes. and I, I forget the name of it. We talked about this in my publication. And then there's also uh, one in Calgary and Alberta. Uh, so they're popping up. Different ideas are popping up uh, around North America and also in Europe. Yeah, it's so funny because I remember when I, when I got to NIAF, um, gosh, you know, 10 years ago now, I decided to create a conference at our gala weekend called Yeti Oji Domani, where we would talk about the history of the foundation. We talk about where we were in the present and where we were going to go. And a big portion of the where we were going to go was an open mic for our, our guests and our audience to sort of, you know, present to us what they thought was important in the community and whatnot or whatever it was. It was a sort of town hall. And one of the uh, attendees got up to the mic and talked about how her mother was suffering from dementia. She needed to put her in a facility and she was, um, her mother was an immigrant from Italy and she was sort of surprised 
that there were no facilities that created a, uh, let's, I don't want to say homogenous ethnic environment, but a, let's say a familiar ethnic environment because she felt that her mother would do better in a place that uh, accessed the portions of her life and her memory that were still much more familiar to her so long ago. And so she said, you know, are there facilities out there for people who speak Italian or, you know, and and as far as I understood at the time, there weren't, and I don't think there are now, Mm -hmm. but it's interesting to wonder. There There was one. There was, but 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 it had closed, right? The, the sister, I don't know if I don't know if it's still around. I know that the sisters of Saint John the Baptist, who were out of Saint Lucy's in Newark, they had Saint John's uh, Villa in Staten Island. They had in Westchester, the Bronx, at one point, an Italian nursing home for elderly Italians, and the reason was that it was part of what they did as nuns, but it was it was for. Italian Americans or Italians who didn't have a, a family to take care of them in their old age or had some kind of disease like Alzheimer's where they needed, you know, constant care and that they could be taken care of by nuns who could speak Italian. There was one. I don't know if it's still around. Yeah, I don't know. But there, there was one in the night. It was up into the 90s and early 2000s. It was still there. I can't remember the name, whether it's still there now. I have no idea. But I, that that concept had been had been done. Is it actually the case that most people or, or a portion of people who suffer from dementia or Alzheimer's, why is it that they are oftentimes, at least from what we understand, sort of traveling back in time? Why, why is it that they're more familiar and comfortable with the, the deep memory as opposed to the more recent memory? Well, I mean, I, I think the, the quick answer is that we're not able to form the short-term memories anymore when we develop dementia. So, well, and let me, let me just explain something. So Alzheimer's disease is a type of dementia. It's the most common type, but there are, are other types of dementia, and some types of dementia actually don't involve memory impairment. Alzheimer's disease does. So there are other dementias where I, I had a friend develop frontal uh, temporal lobe dementia, and she, her short-term memory was fine but she could not add and subtract anymore. And in fact, when I first saw her, I thought she was putting me on that she was not able to calculate simple arithmetic. I was just so shocked to see it. It's one thing to read about it, but to see your friend and to, and to you know, see how their brain has lost functions that we take for granted, it's just really extraordinary. So we're not able to form these short-term memories anymore. So what do I mean? I mean, we can't remember what we ate for lunch two hours earlier. And so it is more comforting uh, because, you know, Alzheimer's disease is a gradual process. It doesn't happen overnight. Most people, it takes at least 10 years to progress. And that range can even be wider. There's a lot of variability in Alzheimer's disease. And so people know something's coming. They know that there's a change. And so it does become more comforting to do what you have control over. And that's to use your long-term memory. So long-term memory is a whole different animal. And I actually studied memory for many years before I got into Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, the hippocampus is a region of the brain that not only is it sensitive to head trauma and stroke, but it's one of the first regions of the brain that gets affected in Alzheimer's. And it's that center that really starts to encode and translate the short-term memory into intermediate memory, and then finally into long-term memory. But once the long-term memories are established, they're in many different places in your cortex, dozens and dozens of places. So it's kind of like a safety feature, right? So if you have damage to the hippocampus, that's like huge because it's such a central processing center. 
But when you have dozens of places that have that long-term memory stored, then you could have a head injury and still remember long-term events. Do you know what I mean? Sure, yeah. So I, I think it's a control thing. It's a comfort issue. I mean, that's my guess. I'm not a psychologist, but that's what makes sense to me. Wow. I find that very fascinating, the, the idea that there's sort of ways to create a, a, a comfort zone for people as they deal with these kind of things. And I would imagine if you can do that, from there, everything else is slightly improved and elevated because your your base level is is comfort, you know. Yeah, I, I you think about somebody's sort of cultural and ethnic overlay as a comfort zone, but it's also interesting to see now, particularly like you know we talk a lot about ancestry and these DNA tests and services, and I've been because I subscribe to all of them. You know, you always get these. Um, alerts that say, you know, sign up for the genetic marker exam and test your DNA. And when we had the baby, we had to go through all these genetic marker tests. And I know that certain diseases like Cooley's anemia, one of the reasons that Cooley's anemia has been a a big cause of the order Sons and Daughters of Italy in America is because... Unico, John. Unico, too. Oh, Unico, too? Yeah. Unico is a huge... Unico, I, I spent many Sundays, Palm Sundays, collecting for Unico for Cooley's anemia. Because it primarily impacts Italian Mediterranean Americans, people, yeah. Italian Americans, Mediterranean. Do we find any kind of genetic markers in ethnic groups that differentiate them when it comes to Alzheimer's, dementias? Is there a predominance among certain ethnic groups? Well, that's a great question. I mean, what we do know is that there's four genes that have been well established that play a role in Alzheimer's. And there's two or three of these genes that are involved in early onset form. So early onset is when you develop Alzheimer's before you're 60, right? And so there's the presenilin gene, there's the APP gene. There's also another gene called APOE4. Now that's like deadly. So if you get an allele from your mother and your father, it increases your risk several fold. So you know, when I first started college many years ago, the thought was, is that maybe five, 10% of, of genetics play this influence in Alzheimer's. And so we know we have very positive data about those four genes, but as people do more experiments, there's hundreds of genes that are being associated with Alzheimer's. We don't have the same level of solid evidence for all these hundreds of other genes, but genetics are playing a role and epigenetics are playing a role, which is another facet to our, our genetic constitution and how all that works, you know, with epigenetics. And really another way of saying that is like, what turns genes on and off? That's important because you could have genes that are there, but if they're not being turned on or in some cases off, maybe it doesn't really matter that much. So anyway, genetics plays a role. And what fascinates me because I've been studying the mitochondria for the last nine years or so is that our mitochondrial DNA, which is different than our nuclear DNA, our mitochondrial DNA all comes from our mothers. It's all inherited through a maternal lineage. And that creates a very interesting question because I don't know if you realize is that two thirds of women in the US and Canada have Alzheimer's. Wow, what, two thirds? So before menopause, women are at much lower risk for Alzheimer's, but after menopause, the risk for women like triples. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, the obvious point to make there is that, well, how does sex hormones play a role? Well, good question. And some of my, one of my PhD students in Canada is studying that right now, but also how do genetics play a role, especially with mitochondrial DNA 
since we're getting that DNA only from our mothers, right? And so there's a lot going on, a lot of moving parts. And and have they discovered any of these, like, you know, any of these markers that suggest any kind of ethnic prevalence in, in communities? Or is... Yeah, so people are looking at that all the time. And so, I mean, I haven't looked at it, any of the review papers this year, but um, there certainly are differences if you compare the Asians to Caucasians, and if you compare the, those groups to African-Americans or just Africans in general, uh, so, so those broad sorts of groupings. To look at distinctions among different European groups, that gets a lot trickier, right? That's part of the reason a lot of this DNA stuff confuses people, frankly, because you send in a spit sample and people think that they have all the answers, but it's it's highly complicated stuff. And, yeah. you know, we always caution everybody to really kind of dig in as best you can to the science. But, um, yeah, I find that it's interesting to see how much we can learn preventatively about our our genetics, our health, our health markers, and things like that. And I think people are taking a new interest and approach to this because, like you say, there are those who believe we can really extend longevity, and th- this is a goal for a lot of people. I think people are taking ownership too, right? And so in the past, we just listened to our doctor and we just kind of nodded our head and did what they wanted, but it's not that way anymore. We have an active role uh, in who we seek for treatment and how we apply that treatment to ourselves, and if we should apply the treatment to ourselves. So it's a, it's a brave new world, right? Yeah, it sure is, yeah. And I think that the availability of, of information through communicative technologies, through the internet, you know, you, you do become your own advocate because whether you're a trained professional or not, you're reading, yeah. if, that's your, you know, if that's your tendency, you're reading as much as you can. And, and you know, I think it's, I think it's important. Yeah, Internet's a good thing and a bad thing because I guess I think for many people, it gets harder to have a good handle over the quality of information, right? Yeah. Because there's a lot of stuff out there that's junk. And then there's a lot of other stuff out there that's pretty good. And then there's other stuff that only certain people understand. So there's certainly a hierarchy that for the average person is is kind of a little bit tough to get through. It makes a job harder for healthcare professionals in some sense because, you know, like you said, in the old days, you went to a doctor because you knew you weren't a doctor and the doctor said X and you thought X was gospel and, you know, you went off and did it. And many cases, I'm sure people were getting not so great advice, but now, you know, you have to be prepared as a healthcare professional to really go the distance with somebody who may or may not have all of the information that they think they have. And so it's... uh it's very complex, uh, this kind of this kind of care and, and how it's prescribed and, and also how it's uh, adapted and adopted by the intended patient, right? Yeah, I think you're right, John. And, and it changes so quickly. It's, it is hard to stay on top of it. I do a lot of TV shows and talk shows. And, you know, I mean, I, it, uh, it's hard for me to always keep up with all the new information. And I'm being asked questions about stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, I heard about that, but I haven't had a chance to read about it yet. Right. I mean, I haven't read the scientific paper on it yet, and I don't know if I should believe that study yet or not. So, I mean, it is hard to keep up and uh, and and things get more specialized, too. You know, I mean, there is this tendency, especially with Alzheimer's, to lump it all into one pot. And that doesn't make sense. I mean, we learned from cancer studies many years ago that we really need to look at cancer differently. We have to subdivide it into different types and some types are treatable. Other types aren't. 
some types are even curable. Um, and Alzheimer's disease isn't quite as far along yet in our understanding. In fact, many neuroscientists look to the cancer studies as a model system because they are several year, years ahead of us in, in their studies and even in their funding. They get a lot more money for research than Alzheimer's disease research folks do. So I think that's one of the challenges going forward is to kind of subdivide what type of Alzheimer's do you have? What type of dementia do you have? Is it due to a metabolic change? Is it due to a toxin? Is it a genetic sort of uh, influence? Is it a combination of all these things? And I think once we get a better idea about what type of Alzheimer's you have, we can think about more efficient treatment options. And right now the treatment options are horrible. Is that right? I think so. I mean, there's that new drug. The first drug for Alzheimer's that got approved since 2003 just got released last year, aducanumab, and it was very controversial. And, and two or three of the FDA committee members resigned from the committee because, well, it's an expensive drug. It came out first at 54,000 a year. And now I guess with Medicare in the US, they've cut it to 26,000 per year, 26,000 per year. You got to take it IV and you got to come into the clinic once a month and it's only for certain populations. So it's complicated. It's not like you just take a pill at home three times a day and, and see your doctor once a year, right? So that's the only drug that's been approved since 2003. And overall, there's only six drugs. There's four drugs that we've been working with for many years. Then there is a fifth drug that's a combination of two of the four. And then this new drug that's the sixth drug that's still controversial. And the scientists and physicians are also uh, arguing about it yet. New episodes of Old Favorites are on Media Set Italia this May. A new season of Freedom will take you on brand new adventures, amazing you with the mysteries of history and nature, airing Wednesday nights. Test your smarts with the primetime edition of popular quiz show Avanti Un Altro every Thursday night with host Paolo Bonolis. And don't forget to catch the end of this round of Amici on May 15th and the best of edition on May 22nd. Plus, new episodes of Uomini e Donne, Forum, Cotto e Mangiato, Verissimo, and more. Mediaset Italia brings you the best television entertainment from Italian channels Canale 5, Italia 1, and Rete 4. So you'll never miss a moment from Italy. Call your local television provider and ask about Mediaset Italia today. So that being said, if the if the pharmaceutical solutions are not quite there, and we talked about the idea that perhaps culturally, and I, you know, again, we have all different levels of uh, integration and assimilation, but I think it's safe to say. One of the things that still unites Italian Americans and Italians is the sanctity of their family uh, life and, and the responsibility to one another, especially the older generations. I think we traditionally have a community that's very dedicated to its elderly. And maybe there are a lot of audience members out there who are addressing this kind of stuff in their family with aging, maybe don't want to engage long-term care in terms of residential care and things like that. John, I mean, just think about it's really the underlying premise of The Sopranos is Tony's trying to take care of his aging mother. Yeah, that's true. And the huge issue is, do I put mom in a nursing home? Yeah. yeah. Which isn't really a nursing home, which is more like a, a care facility. 
And then you have Paul Walnut saying, you know, I'm going to put my mother in a nursing home just to show that Tony's mother's not better than mine, which is probably the truest Italian interpretation of it. <laughs> That's very true. But yeah. it's an issue, uh, you know, and why I was so um, interested in this issue was, A, people want to pre- prevent this, right? So if you're in midlife or kind of going into later in life and you don't have this or you do have this, you don't want it to get worse or you don't want to get it. But also, you know, when you have family members who have it and you realize I can't take care of mom's bed source, she's in worse shape here than she'd be in a facility. I think it tears into a lot of people because, you know, the, the guilt, I don't want mom to go there. Mom always said, if anything ever happens to me, don't put me in a home, shoot me first. And then I try to take and clean mom and I see she's physically deteriorating and I don't have the capacity to take care of her. And I think it puts families in a horrible situation. And I think like, you know, like the doctor said, like, we don't, we don't have the, we're not making the progress in this, with this disease, like we're making with other things like cancer. Yeah. And what do we do and how do we handle it? And I think it's a, and I think it's a different conversation for us is because being just like the Sopranos, we're on top of each other. You know, we're, we're, we're a community that calls up our mothers 18 times a day. <laughs> and they might be yelling on the phone, but everybody's involved and cousins. And, and when you have a family that's so tight, that turned the nuclear family into a tribe, yeah. you know, how do you handle these issues? And I think we have to, as a culture, as a, as a, as a tribe, have these conversations. John, I think it's so important you said that because I think I, I think the Italian American community is so far out ahead with that aspect, and I don't think that the the scientific community and like the Alzheimer's Association and these other groups that are there to help, they don't quite put the same emphasis on it as we do, and that we take for granted as Italian Americans or as Italians that the family component is so core and is so important to us. And when it comes to any sort of emergency in the family or, you know, chronic disease, the family's there for you. Yeah. And it's such an important component of our culture that scientists don't always get that part. And you think, it, you think that there's, it sort of pans out to be productive, the idea that you're with your family. Oh, absolutely. But I think America has lost that, those, some of those fam, family values to, to a degree and that, that's, you know, that's really unfortunate for so many Americans. It's so, Dr., that you bring it up. My grandmother had three sisters. And my grandmother's oldest sister was well into her 80s. And she was a dynamo. She lived a block down from uh, her younger sister who had um, emphysema. So my aunt, oh. I, I had an aunt who was dying of emphysema. Okay. Who was 77. And then I had an aunt who was well into her 80s. I would say into her late eighties, who was her care. T- no, I would say, well, her mid eighties, who was her caretaker. And um, while my aunt suffered from emphysema, my other aunt who was older was like a, a dynamo. She'd run down, take care of my aunt with emphysema, cook for her son, clean the house, wash the house, wash the clothes, run up to the house from her, all up to her own house, up the block, call my grandma, complain about my aunt, complain about this, complain about that. Eat, you know, uh, go back to my aunt's house. So my aunt was a dynamo. Her sister dies of emphysema and my aunt declined mentally in six months. It was incredible. Mm. She was just gone. And I realized then that everyone was saying to my aunt, you know, this is too much taking care of your sister. They kept my, kept my aunt alive, you know? And I think if her, if her younger sister had lived another 20 years, my aunt would have been 102 on roller skates. And, you know, just as the doctor says, like, you know, being on top of each other and involved in multi-generational houses, um, as much as we complain about it, there's a, there's a big dividend to that. Yeah. 
You know, I say all the time, it's like, you know, when you had a grandparent, there was a study that came out and it spoke about how, why do humans live so far past the age when they reproduce, right? And the study was that we've kind of evolved that um, grandparents are secondary caregivers to children, right? So the, the need in humanity is that, you know, mom and dad need help with the, with the kids. And that's why grandma and grandpa are around. And I think that like, I'm, I'm like, why do people go to over 55 communities? I think people over 55 should be hanging out in kindergartens, <laughs> chasing true. after little kids and, and in grammar schools. Because if you look at the at people as they aged, in my opinion, from my experience, the ones who are in the best shape in the later years are the ones who are like complaining that they have to take care of their grandchildren. Like this kid's running around. I can't handle it anymore. You know, I, I got this eight year old, you know, my daughter works. I got this eight year old running around the house. This kid's driving me crazy. They're usually the people who are in great shape compared to the ones who are watching TV and playing golf and talking about medication with everybody else in the other 55 and over community. I think that's worse. That's why I think the village is such a good idea. Everybody needs little kids around. Yeah. Yeah. And the activity part that you mentioned, I think, is so critical, too, just to be engaged, active, keeping your brain active, exercising. And, you know, we talked a little bit about diet earlier. In my view, exercise is even more important than diet. And, and so many of us fail at that. And so it's critical to keep that blood flow going and to keep the muscles strong. And it all, it's all connected to healthy brain function, even though it's not brain function. I mean, so there's a lot to be said about exercise. Doctor, let me ask you a question. If you had to write a prescription for the listeners and I, the stuff that you do, what do you think? Now, I know there's no magic bullet, but what are the activities, the foods? Is it weightlifting, intermittent fasting? What are the things, you know, green vegetables? If you had to say these are the things you should stick to yeah. to, to fight um, the onset of Alzheimer's, what would that be, that prescription? So I just have to disclose I have a PhD, not an MD, so I'm not a physician, but I'll tell you what I think. And so... Uh, so as we, you know, the, the whole thing about supplements, I know somebody's going to ask about vitamin supplements. Supplements are still complex. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. They work great in the animal studies. They don't always work great in humans. So it's a, it's a, it's a problem. But fish, certainly, you got to reduce red meat. You got to eliminate or reduce red meat. Uh, eat more fish. Uh, I eat salmon and trout, sometimes uh, tuna. Uh, and I know everybody's concerned about the mercury, but so what? So, you know, you have to balance all that out. And if you're pregnant, you don't want too much mercury. And it is a concern, but there are ways of getting healthy fish. And, and so fish, fruits and vegetables every day. And if you tend to be a diabetic, I would eat more vegetables and fruit uh, just to keep your blood sugar low, levels low. It's all about reducing inflammation as we age. It's all about inflammation and inflammation is central, central to cancer and Alzheimer's, which is very fascinating. So we want to keep inflammation low and we do that by eating the right foods, by exercising. We've got to keep the blood flow going. Um, I mean, I, I run two or three miles a couple of times a week. I, I, I don't think that's enough really, but, but I feel so much better after that. Uh, so I think exercise is number one and then diet. And with regard to diet, the Mediterranean diet is great. Uh, in fact, I was on a committee with Martha Claire Morris. She just published a new book a couple of years ago. Really great lady. She died prematurely, but she published a book called Diet of the Mind. And the, and the mind diet, which my old boss also worked on, is really a combination of the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet, which is a diet to reduce hypertension. 
So everything that we learned about in Italy with olive oil and a variety of other, you know, aspects to red wine, these are, these are helpful. And of course, you know, we're not talking about a license to drink, you know, multiple cocktails every day, but there is some benefit to drinking red wine. And in fact, some alcohol seems to have heart benefits uh, in general, but it's a tricky thing because not everybody can, can drink and not have a problem with drinking, but the red wine seems to be on the list too. So healthy green vegetables and other things too, like red beets, anything that can reduce blood pressure, foods that, and almonds, I eat lots of almonds. So there are a lot of things out there. Some of it we've known for a long time. And really, it's more of a matter of a compliance than it is uh, new knowledge, right? What about families that do have somebody who's suffering from these diseases and is living with them or, or living nearby or the family's a primary caregiver? Are there any tips that you have in terms of sort of socially building your life around this kind of stuff? You know, I saw a lot of bad things in the rest home environment. And I think there are a lot of people that are trained that are making mistakes. And so it's, it's a very disappointing thing for me to see. I also see things happen in people's homes and you even have less, I mean, there's even less I can say if I'm in somebody else's home, right? right. You know, we, it's very difficult for some adult children as they see their parent or grandparent age and to be making mistakes, to be making, to be forgetting and a lot of people with Alzheimer's actually get quite aggressive, which is a behavior that's hard to manage for, you know, obvious reasons. So I don't think you should be challenging those people. Um, I actually had a webinar, Challenges in Alzheimer's Research and Care, where I talk about some of these things. Uh, it's on YouTube, I think, if you look me up. But I don't think you should be arguing with someone about uh, if they made the right choice or not. If they remembered something, you can't be getting mad at these people that uh, and aren't remembering the, where their keys are, or if they're putting their, maybe they're putting their underwear in the refrigerator. I mean, this is one of the things that happens in dementia, really unusual behaviors. You can't get mad at people about this. There has to be a level of patience and there has to be tolerance, but you know, not all of us are tolerant people. Not all of us have patience and there's a huge amount of stress on any caregiver. So one has to be prepared for that commitment and the burnout that's associated with caregiving. So it's not easy. It's not easy by any means. And I, I think you have to look to all sources of, of support, the Alzheimer's Association. Uh, if you go to church, your, your priest or your rabbi, you know, other people that are in your life. And we talked about the importance of family and it, you, know, you take it one step further, your support network. So I think those are just a few of the things that pop in the top of my head. You know, one thing I'll throw in real quick is that music really helped my mother. So my mother, of course, she was in her 20s during World War II. My mother would go to Navy Pier in Chicago during World War II. And, and the big band era came just before that. So she would listen to all this music in the rest home and it really, really helped her. It really helped to reduce her agitation. So music therapy is a great thing. Some hospitals have it as a normal uh, kind of, and some rest homes use it routinely now, but it really helped my mom with her agitation. Well, I mean, I, it's good to have the professional expertise to back up the long-held idea that family is uh, it, it can be and should be annoying be. <laughs> so they, i knew you're gonna do something like that you know but john what i brought up aggravation 
I really think my aunt benefited getting aggravated, taking care of my other aunt. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Because it kept, I know it sounds crazy, but I think it kept her mind going, animated. Oh, something to live for, right? Something to live for. Yeah, they would drive right. each other nuts. But like my aunt would go down there, you know, blah, blah, blah. She'd go up, call my grandmother. They were all busy taking care of my aunt. And I just think that in some ways they were even younger. They were like kids again. Yeah. You know, and I just think that. But look, doctor, let me ask you one, one other question. We discuss intermittent fasting. What do you think is the benefit to the 5-2 diet of intermittent fasting in, in combating Alzheimer's? Well, that's one of the things we're studying in the lab. So what happens, we believe, is that one of the pathways, so that when, when you don't eat for a few hours, you're stimulating one of the mechanisms in the mitochondria that we call mitophagy. Now, mitophagy is part of a process, a larger cellular process that I'll use another scientific term called autophagy. All it is is, a, is recycling and cellular debris cleanup. We're talking about garbage cleanup and we're talking about recycling. These are processes that the cell uses that as we age start to decline in their effectiveness. But when you fast, and fasting isn't the only thing, like the Scandinavians are famous for jumping in cold lakes. Same thing in Canada. Or there's a polar bear club in Chicago. They'd go in Lake Michigan. If they had to break the ice, they'd break the ice and jump in the ice water in the winter. This also stimulates the mitochondria. And it stimulates these so-called mitophagy mechanisms. It's a cleanup mechanism. So what they do is that they get rid of all the junk. They get rid of the cellular debris. And they kind of help to stimulate and recycle the damaged mitochondria, because mitochondria are always making more of themselves. They actually go through these fission and fusion processes. And so they can actually make more of themselves. And by making more, you're going to have more ATP output. And, it, and it's just like putting new batteries in your flashlight or, or turning up the heater on your furnace. With more energy comes better cellular function, comes better household function. So it's that, it's that mechanism that's being stimulated by by fasting, or at least that's one of the mechanisms that scientists are studying, and we're doing that some of that work in my lab. That's so fascinating. Makes me feel good about the fact that we're on this. I was ahead of the curve. <laughs> As always, curve. you always are. I was always, people didn't use brushes to shaving cream. I was ahead of that like 30 years ago. <laughs> yes, you Fountain heard. pens 30 years ago, cufflinks, and even yes. intermittent fasting. So everything old is new again. Everything old is new again. That's absolutely right. Am I on the wave of the old that I just didn't leave the old? Or am I on the wave of the new that I'm just anticipating? The, <laughs> the yin or the yang? The chicken or the egg? Uh, I don't know. The, the fact that you told me you haven't left the house without shaving a day since you were 14 tells me you've always been on the old. Absolutely. You know, you're, you're an old soul. But there's reasons to believe that that's beneficial. And that's what this whole episode's been about. This idea that, you know, family is, is stressful. And maybe it's a raison d'etre and maybe it's a benefit and maybe it's a comfort. And, you know, these are things that we're all going to face as society gets older and lifespans extend. And hopefully we as the NPR of the Italian American community can provide somebody out there with a little boost in how they or their family is handling something like this or a little forewarning of ways to be aggressive in prevention and also treatment. Take care of your body and take care of your brain. So you can listen to us for many years to come. <laughs> That's right. So go go for that run. Eat that green leafy vegetable. Have a little bit of red wine, not too much. 
There you go. Run, go to the gym, lift, intermittent fast, and then you can hear me for many, many years. And don't forget the olive oil. Lots of olive oil, yeah. drowning in olive oil. Olive oil is cheaper than medication. There you go. And listen to us while you're running. Yeah, listen to us while you're mm-hmm. nothing, nothing stimulates a run like the Italian American <laughs> podcast, that's for sure. And John, let me put in a plug for South Florida. I'm one of the organizers for the Walk to End Alzheimer's. The walk has been changed for Broward County in South Florida. It was going to be November 5th. It's now December 10th, and it actually starts right here at my university. So Nova Southeastern University is the origination point, just like last year. And so I encourage anyone that's out there in Broward County to come to our walk December 10th. Or, of course, if you're in another location, go to your local walk to support the Alzheimer's Association. So thank you. Or if you're an Italian-American and you're in another location, come out and meet the good doctor because uh, Professor Albenzi has been a great pleasure for us to have, and I'm sure he would be welcoming to uh, say hello and meet you there at, uh, at Broward County's walk, which I'm sure is uh, going to do great things. And we have a lot of listeners in Florida. They could have we a do. We have a lot of listeners, yeah. We'll get together and, and walk. How far is the walk? Uh, I think it's five miles. Right, Pat, maybe we should try to go down for it. I love walking. I walk every day. You do. You love walking. Yeah, I'm yeah. me. I'm a little less mobile than you. But either way, I hope everybody does go out and participate in the Walk for Alzheimer's, wherever you are. And if you want to do it down in Broward, you know you've got a paisan down there that you can say hello to. So, again, Dr., it's been a great pleasure. We really enjoyed having you on here. And, uh, and thank you for all you're doing for us. Yeah. As a community, thank you. Mm-hmm. Great talking to you folks. Keep up the podcast. I love it. Well, thank you. And keep up the good work. And uh, thanks for everything. Thank so, you. Thank you, doctor. So hopefully this has been helpful for you, some information for you and your loved ones. And uh, if you have any questions, I'm sure we could help put you in touch with Dr. Albensi and keep the conversation going for the betterment of the most important thing out there, the family. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. If you want your life to be great. See that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born an Italiano and your life.